to Canaan's land. I'm on my way where the soul of man never dies. My darkest night will turn to day where the soul of man never dies. Dear friends, there'll be no sad farewell There'll be no tear-dimmed eyes Where all is peace and joy and love And the soul of man never dies A rose is blooming there for me Where the soul of man never dies and I will spend eternity Where the soul of man never dies Dear friends, there'll be no sad farewell There'll be no tear-dimmed eyes Where all is peace and joy and love And the soul of man never dies I'm on my way to that fair land Where the soul of man never dies Where there will be no parting hand And the soul of man never dies Dear friends, there'll be no sad farewell There'll be no tear-dimmed eyes where all is peace and joy and love And the soul of man never dies So this is CITR 101.9 FM. This is the Ink Stud Show, the radio show where we talk about comics. And our guest today is uh, Emmanuel Guibert, and his latest book is uh, The Photographer, which is a, a mammoth, um, excellent look at one person's experience um, in Afghanistan following the uh, Medicine Sans Frontier. Medicine Sans Frontier. There we go. Mike's got it better than me. Um, Afghanistan 1987, and it's really uh, an incredible look at a unique experience that no one else will be able to kind of understand in some ways. Is that a good way of putting it? Yes, yeah, you, you said uh, almost everything. <laughs> um, as a matter of fact, well, uh, if we begin by the beginning about this book, um, it's first of all and above all a book about a friend of mine, a very dear friend of mine, Didier Lefebvre, whom I met when I was 14, and he was 21. We were neighbors at the time. We were living in the same building in Paris. And uh, I was a teenager, and he was uh, starting uh, to study. And at the time, he started his studies in um, biology. He wanted to become uh, a biologist. But he also wanted to travel, because that's always been one, one of his uh, passions. And um, so... As soon as uh, he's been uh, graduated, he he tried to find a way to travel all over the world. The first was provided by the French government. It was his military service. 
so that he made in uh, in Africa. And uh, on his way back from the Horn of Africa uh, to France, he decided he would try uh, his chains with uh, Doctor Without Borders, with Médecins Sans Frontières. So gave him a phone call and said, uh, I'm a biologist and I'm ready to work for you. Would you have a, by any chance some <laughs> job for me? And they said, uh, yes, you're leaving tomorrow or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, back to the Horn of Africa. And uh, he spent a few months uh, uh, with the Eritrean resistance. At, at the time, the, the uh, I don't know how to pronounce it, the Eritrea was in war with uh, Ethiopia. Mm -hmm. And um, so there was this very well-organized resistance uh, where uh, that Didier uh, had to know. He stumbled there and uh, he worked for, for them for a little while. Um, then had some other missions, but as the missions went by, he always took along with him a camera and bit by bit realized that he was more a photographer than a biologist. So one day he dropped the biologist uh, tools and uh, kept on going only with the camera, but remained in Doctors Without Borders as a photographer. And um, in 86, he was 29, in the, in the lobby of uh, Doctors Without Borders in Paris, Boulevard Saint-Marcel, he met um, a young woman called Juliette, Juliette Fourneau, who grabbed him in a corridor and said, uh, Didier, uh, you're going to come with me to Afghanistan. <laughs> and um, everything was very simple with Didier. So the answer was just yes. And a few weeks later, uh, he left. After, uh, Juliette had left first with uh, most of the members of the mission. So he, he joined them in uh, Peshawar, Pakistan. And this is where the album, the, the book, The Photographer, begins. It's funny, like, I get the feeling when I read it um, that... It was such a new experience to him. So, the experience in North Africa or the the Horn of Africa um, was quite different than from Afghanistan. It sounds like it was. It was because uh, <coughs> when he was in Africa, most of the time, most of the time he was ex exercising his first job, and uh, the the Afghanistan mission has been really one of not the very first, but the first important mission he did as a photographer. So that, that made it already special. And then it was the discovery for him of a country which um, took the role that uh, Lebanon had for uh, the generation just above, uh, above him mm -hmm. or before him, and uh, Vietnam for... Uh, the generation before, etc. So it was like uh, at this time, it was the the place to be for uh, for a photojournalist. Yeah, Lebanon was quite the uh, at one time was it the the Las Vegas of the the Mediterranean until uh, the 1970s when they had the the civil wars there. I'm trying to remember. Yeah, 
you you're talking about Lebanon? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Didier was too young at the time and not uh, absolutely not involved in the mm -hmm. photographer <laughs> job at the time. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but um, when he when he decided that this would become his job, he's been on his, from his point of view lucky enough to receive this proposition and to be able to live in uh, extraordinary conditions because the country at the time I'm talking about Afghanistan now. Yeah. Was submitted to a very severe uh, blackout, and no one would uh, go in, no one would come out, except that, of course, a lot of persons did clandestinely. But uh, it was not that easy. Once you were in the country, all the roads were taken by the um, the Afghan regular army under the orders of the Russians, of the yeah. Soviets. To be more that would be the the communist <laughs> faction yeah and uh, and the Soviets themselves who were highly weaponed and uh, very numerous inside the country since the conflict had started in 79 so seven years before so it was very long conflict and um, I don't know if it's necessary to remind to the persons who listen to us uh, how all of this started, but when the Russians invaded the Afghanistan, uh, the um, the worldwide community, uh, every everyone thought that uh, they would just eat and swallow this country in in about two days. <laughs> I mean, they, they had the reputation to be uh, the second or or maybe the one of the two first <laughs> uh, armies in the world, and. Um, this nation of uh, mountaineers and peasants and etc. Uh, everybody thought that they didn't have any chance. But um, on the contrary, uh, after a short while, we, everybody realized that uh, those people from from the mountains of Afghanistan, first of all, lived in a country that was very hard to occupy, as uh, Americans know and today yeah. <laughs> and the worldwide community and um, so so it took a long time for them to, to to try to rule the place and in as a matter of fact they never succeeded they never succeeded because after a while uh, the Americans and uh, some people in Western Europe realized that uh, it would be a b good idea to help this resistance in fighting the Russians because they were inflicting uh, deep wounds to to the Russian army, mm -hmm. and uh, this is the starting of uh, of a complicated and interesting story uh, with very tragical consequences, in which we live, we still live today, mm -hmm. and it's the story of the the arrival of uh, fundamentalism in Afghanistan, because first of all the Afghans were uh, it was really a patriotic resistance. Yeah, and uh, the only the only goal was to to pull to pull the uh, to, to to get rid of the Russians of the Soviets. But uh, after a while, with the arrival of the first uh, Wahhabi fundamentalist in the in the southern part of the country, uh, it turned bit by bit into an ideological resistance. And just so people know, the Wahhabi 
is that's uh, a group out of Saudi Arabia that are quite fundamentalist there and cause a lot of conflict within Saudi Arabia, as far as I know. And then that's where uh, Bin Laden was part of. And yeah, yeah, Bin Laden, Bin Laden for instance, arrived arrive, arrived very early in uh, in Afghanistan. Juliette got to meet him uh, in '84, as a matter of fact. Oh my God! That's a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, at the time, of course, he well, he wasn't poor himself, but um, his pockets and his hands were full of dollars <laughs> because uh, the American government at the time was uh, financing those uh, these. Um, these armies, let's uh -huh. call them this way, uh, a lot. Mm -hmm. So, so that's the situation that these doctors have been confront confronted to, and uh, twenty years after, um, when uh, when Didier came back from this mission, he was um, he he felt very happy because. After four months of mission, and from which he, be he he turned back completely exhausted, and he lost fourteen teeth, and uh, he he had one year of disease and exhaustion afterwards. But uh, he felt he was very lucky because he published six uh, photographs, six photographs in the newspapers in France, and for him it was like paradise. <laughs> but he had taken 4,000 of them during That's the amazing. mission. And the rest of the photographs were supposed to be uh, in a box forever and uh, never to get out again. So what happened is that after after a long time, it was at the end of the, the 90s, uh, as I told you, I knew Didier since a very long time, but we never really succeeded in becoming actual friends because uh, he was always uh, around the world and I was most of the time in Paris so it was difficult even to meet but he was in a period uh, quite austere and desertic period of his professional life in the 90s he had left the agency for which he was he had been working for years and uh, he became an independent, and uh, it became worse and worse. He, I mean, finding jobs were was really hard time for him, and um, so the consequence of that is that he had time for me, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's the period where I told wh when I told him, uh, Didier, I I I love you, <laughs> <laughs> but we don't spend in enough time together. Uh, I'd like to meet you at least once a month because I want to see more of your f photographs and I want you to tell me about uh, the, the stories uh, that surround them. So uh, we did that. We took a monthly appointment for a lunch and um, it was maybe at the second or the third time uh, I was at his home in the suburbs of Paris where he lived with his wife and two children and um, we had the whole afternoon in front of us and I said please um, choose a mission for me in the 20 former years and uh, tell it to me we have time we have four hours ahead of us 
and I like to listen to such a story. So he disappeared in his studio, and he came back with these boxes. And the mission he had chosen was the one I'm, I've, I've told in the in the photographer. So he put these boxes on my knees, opened them, and inside were the 130 contact sheets with the 4,000 pictures, some <laughs> of the printings he had made at the time, and the uh, marvelous notebooks that he used to do to try to soothe a little bit the frustration he had to publish so little, so few photographs after having having taken having taken so many during a mission. So he used to do very nice, very fancy uh, uh, notebooks in which he would uh, write some elements of his diary and stick the, the photographs. So all this material was on my knees, and uh, he took off the the first contact sheet of uh, the first box. And he started to point at the picture and to explain to me what was within. And one of the, one of the first things I realized was uh, a contact sheet looked a lot morphologically like uh, a graphic novel or a comics page. Mm -hmm. uh, these are images side by side with uh, an action into them, running into them from one to another. And uh, if you have the privilege to have the photographer by your side who <laughs> can explain you what's going on in the pictures, you're really living the story. That's, uh, that's not exactly like a movie, that's not exactly like a radio show, that's not exactly like anything on earth. It was the, what I've the, the, the time I've spent this afternoon with him was, was a new experience for me. It was uh, s still images which uh, which moved thanks to his words. So at the end of the afternoon, I've, I've, I was, as we say in, in France, I don't know if you say it in America or in Canada, I was hung up to his lips. <laughs> and, um, Hanging on to every word. <laughs> uh, yeah. And um, I, I said, uh, I hadn't say anything except asking a few questions during this afternoon. But of course, uh, in my head, uh, I was boiling. And um, at the end of the afternoon, I said, I've spent one of the most interesting afternoons in my life, and uh, I'd like to make a book about that, which would mix my drawings and your pictures, your photographs. And he's been a, a bit surprised, because uh, I couldn't figure out how I was about to do such a thing. And I couldn't either. Uh, but I knew there was something to, to try. So I came back home, and first thing I did was to, to, to make another, other appointments with him, <laughs> not monthly <laughs> ones, but weekly ones. And uh, because uh, what I told him is that to be able to write the story, I had to hear it in a way that I could be able to say I in my story uh, as if I have lived it. So for this purpose, I needed to have a lot of taped conversations with him. And uh, I've already, I had already practiced that in the past, as a matter of fact, with another friend called uh, Alan Cope, mm -hmm. to whom I dedicated uh, another book called Alan's War. And 
uh, it's more or less the same process. Uh, Alan was much older than Didier, but he was also a very good friend. And uh, we behaved this way. We, we taped endlessly our conversations. And from these tapes, I wrote the story. So that's what I started to do with Didier. And uh, after a while, just before I started to draw, I asked a third friend to join us, uh, whose name is Frédéric Lemercier. He's a graphic designer. And um, he never had done any colors uh, before in his life for a comic. <laughs> so I asked him to do so. And um, and also I asked him to be kind enough to uh, make the work of inserting the photographs in the continuum of the drawings um, by computer. So, and then I started to draw. And during one month and a half, I threw in the garbage can everything I was drawing. <laughs> I wasn't able at all to f to to find a style, a graphic style, which would fit with the photographs. <laughs> I had this intuition before that uh, drawings and photographs were two medias that didn't want to to get close to each other. And uh, if you put a drawing and a photograph side by side, usually uh, there's always one trying to kill the other. And it's not always the photographs which wins. As a matter of fact, sometimes the drawing can be most po more powerful. But um, it's a fight, and I didn't want to fight. No. So, first of all, for instance, I tried to I tried a technique which was more or less the one I used for Alan, because I felt okay. Some of the drawings in Alan are trying to reconstitute. Uh, the ambience of the photographs of the 40s, etc. So if I do the same kind of drawings in black and white with washes, ink washes, etc., uh, it will be like a, a neat and nice um, uh, story uh, with no, with almost no difference between the drawings and the photographs. And uh, it was a big mistake. I tried to do that in the beginning, and then it, the result was uh, very weak. So in the end. I arrived to this solution, I got to this solution, which was to make drawings which were deliberately different from the pho photographs. And uh, so with this thick feature, thick line, and very simple drawings, um, and, and colors upon them also, to create really a difference between the, the two medias. And uh, when I had the feeling that I had reached uh quite satisfying solution i rang the bell of a publisher to to see if there was someone interested in such an adventure and we've been lucky enough to find one there was the edition dupuis in uh, france and belgium and uh, so their agreement of course gave us a lot of confidence to keep on going in, uh, with this subject because since the very beginning I, th I, I thought that um, the comics that would mix uh, photographs and drawings like this one 
could be uh, um, intimidating. I don't know if the word exists mm -hmm. uh, for the readers. I mean, the usual readers of comics would say, uh, "What the hell is that?" and uh, well, and maybe wouldn't even glance at the book. And um, and the people who don't usually read comics uh, anyway, they don't. So I felt that the, the ribbon was very narrow of readers that we may <laughs> reach with this story. <laughs> but um, but when you start a story like that, the only thing you must believe in is the interest of what you're of what you're dealing with. And I had learned so many things in these conversations with Didier that I felt the few readers that will follow us at least if I do my job well they will learn what I have learned uh, which is a lot so in the beginning that was enough to provide energy to us and another great provider of energy for me was Didier who was uh, a man a uh, very shining man very very friendly, very sympathetic, and uh, very vivid, very intelligent, very humorous, <laughs> and um, and full of trust. Because um, if you imagine that he entrusted me with the choice of his photographs on the contact sheets, uh, this is a huge mark of trust from a photographer. Because the job of a professional photographer is as well um, to shoot, as to choose afterwards, yeah. and um, that, that's the whole thing of taking four thousand photos just to see, make yeah. sure you have the six that get published. Yeah. <laughs> and I warned him in the very beginning. I said, "I'm going to, I'm going to show to the public some bad photographs of you, <laughs> <laughs> some photographs that you don't claim at all that you feel that are aesthetically." Uh, week or uh, and uh, he didn't mind which is uh, I couldn't have worked if I hadn't had this uh, distrust from him and um, he never um, he never cancelled an image I had chosen <laughs> he he, o he always agreed on the images because um, the way I presented them wasn't uh, the majestic way in which they are usually presented in big photograph books or exhibitions, etc. He knew, and I knew, that I needed these photographs to tell the story. So even a very bad photograph, but which had in it elements of storytelling, clues for the readers, uh, were worthwhile to, to use were efficient so um, one of my dreams and I told it told him about that in the very beginning would be to in the end to obtain uh, a book which would have been a super big Mac size with all the photographs of the mission <laughs> but, uh, but thi this, this was impossible uh, because um, in terms of uh, edition yeah so it would have made it too expensive books, etc. And I don't even know if it, if it would have been reasonable in terms of storytelling. So I made a choice, but obviously my choice is much wider than the six photographs he had published 
I don't. I've never counted the, the number of photographs we have in this book, but uh, it's quite huge. And uh, one thing that appealed a lot to, to professional photographers and journalists in France and in the countries where the book have already been published, it's that uh, we hardly, we never see so many images about a reporting. Mm-hmm. And um, in this, in in this way, in, in this sense, um, Didier was very fulfilled and happy to have the the opportunity to show more. So the first book um, has been uh, made, and it was only between him and me. While I was doing this first book, him, me, and Frédéric Lemercier. When I when I was doing this first book, I uh, didn't consult and anybody else. Uh, I, for instance, I, I, we knew we had the agreement of the members of the mission, of the doctors and the nurses, etc., for publishing their name and uh, and their photo, their pictures, etc. <coughs> but um, but I hadn't met them at the time, so I got to meet them only when the first volume was published. But the, for the second, bo- the first volume is about the travel mm-hmm. between France and the place in Afghanistan where they're going to settle down and and build their warfield hospital and etc. The second volume is the mission itself. It's the volume of the doctors. It's uh it's about their work there with the local population, which consists in regular medicine, I mean uh uh women having babies and uh, uh, and flus and etc and um, and also the war surgery and the, the w- which consists in curing the the wounded uh, persons wounded by by bullets wounded by landmines wounded by etc by bombings and the third volume is the volume of the travel back <laughs> from uh, Zaragandara to to Paris, and um, so I'm talking about volumes because the the French edition is in three volumes. As a matter of fact, it became three chapters in the book. You know, mm-hmm. same with Alan's War, right? Yeah. Busted out of class. 
I want to paint a, a whole picture of the situation. Um, when the first volume was published, I asked my publisher, and I said, uh, I'd like you to produce a DVD to be inserted in the third volume. That was quite bold to ask such a thing when the fir- first volume was wasn't released yet. <laughs> because, uh, of course, uh, without any success, it would have been impossible to do such a thing. But we've been lucky enough to meet success, and uh, un- really unexpectedly. Uh, Didier and I, uh, if you would have talked to us, uh, uh, it was in 2003, so six years ago now, we we would have told you that uh, that we were expecting to have 2,000 or 3,000 readers, which is already not bad, and uh, and that's enough. But uh, in fact, maybe because it was a story of a photojournalist, maybe because uh, after 9/11, the Afghanistan had uh, come back to the headlines of the newspapers. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe for all sort of reasons that I don't even know myself. Uh, it touched people, and uh, it it touched people in such a way that. Uh, the book was always absent of the bookstores <laughs> because uh, they would they would never print enough of it, and um, so it it put us in such a nice condition to keep on going t- until the very end because we we knew we were expected, and uh, so that gave us comfort and especially the comfort to produce this movie, which is absent of the English ed- edition for the moment. But uh, which is in the French one, and it's uh, it's really the movie of the mission. In the book, you see uh, Juliette, the head of the mission, carrying uh, how do you say that? A scam, scam, scam recorder. Yeah. Recorder. Yeah. Um, it used to be in '86. It was the, f- the first of them. They were they were heavy at the time, but if, of course not as heavy as were regular cameras. So, so they they took images with these uh, scam scam recorder, and um, Juliette came back with 18 hours of rush. So I saw these images while I was working, and they've been very useful to me. And uh, Juliette was uh, kind and cooperative enough to get back to them and to produce a 40 minutes movie, which was inserted uh, in the third French volume, and which is a good compliment a compliment for for the readers who have uh, accompanied the mission during 250 pages something like that <laughs> and suddenly see see the person's move and uh, the animals uh, walking and uh, and complaining and uh, and uh, and the noise and uh, etc so now the, the, the this book has been translated into 12 languages so it's uh, traveling around the world and um, and this has been magnificent for uh, our friendship with Didier because I told you how hard uh, the practice of his job was and um, that gave him a lot of comfort uh, I guess a certain pride and uh, anyway lots of hours of uh, shared friendship uh, before he died uh, in January of 2007, at the age of 49, of a heart attack. 
leaving us uh, horribly sad and uh, but with with the will more than ever than uh, that this um, this very important patrimony that he has gathered during years uh, can be can circulate and can be seen uh, in all sort of different places uh, uh, across uh, around the world. So now that's how I feel. I'm really here on behalf of him and uh, and his children and his wife. And I I want to I I have the ambition now to show what this discreet man has made during his life. I'm very glad that the exhibition here in Manhattan, which opened before I, I arrived in New York, uh, has received the, the night at the opening, the visit of uh, almost 300 persons. And um, there'll be a little debate uh, next Tuesday, and I've learned that it's sold out. So, <laughs> And it's, it's nice. I mean, these a lot of professional photographers have seen this exhibition. And uh, and people like you and me, and uh, some tears were shed, and uh, people said they were impressed by his work, etc. And uh, when you've lost someone, you appreciate it so much. These, these are things that uh, uh, heal a little bit the wounds and give you faith in uh, what can happen next. Uh, a lot of his work remains completely unknown, and uh, I have the ambition in years to come to try to do other books without him but about his work uh, on other reportings he has done in the last years and uh, and I'll try and we'll see it's really interesting you're mentioning how you're telling his story in both this book and um, and Alan's war they're both stories of ordinary people it really fascinating interesting people but in these greater situations like it's kind of I'm a history major in school and what we study is uh, you know the, there's a big thing about big man theory and personality history but you're kind of doing the opposite where where it's like understanding a situation through another lens yeah so to say exactly um, the reason why I have made these two books is that I have had two friends. <laughs> <laughs> uh, very interesting friends. Uh, very interesting friends. And these two friends, I'm one. Uh, I'm, uh, we all we always meet our friends by chance. But Alan, it was by asking him my way in the street. He 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 was the boy next door, and uh, <laughs> we. When I, the first conversations I had with them, informed me that they were exceptional and at the same time I mean they were just living their life and uh, with, with not much uh, possibility to become uh, uh, I don't know renowned persons or and that's not what I wanted as a matter of fact I just I just felt after conversations with them after listening to their the stories they were so skillful in, in in storytelling that what I wanted to do was just to share that I, I mean it's unfair when you listen to an interesting story that the story just remains uh, within four walls if you have a job which allows you to 
touch a certain amount of purses and make the thing circulate. You try to give a form to this story, to this testimony, because uh, because you think it will be important. So that that's really this belief that I had. And while I was listening to the stories, I knew that uh, Alan wasn't uh, a war hero. Uh, he wasn't uh, uh, Tom Hanks. No. <laughs> and uh, I knew that Didier wasn't uh, James Nashway or uh, Robert Kappa. But, uh, but they were my friends. I admired them. I admired the work and the words, and uh, it was not important that they weren't Tom Hanks and Robert Kappa, since I am not good to myself. Or uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, we joined our forces because uh, we had, in in the end, we had the the, the belief that uh, there was something. Uh, valuable to do together and uh, we lived also that as an opportunity to spend more time together because um, when you're a friend with someone and you go from time to time to see a movie or uh, on holidays or uh, that's that's very fine I mean that's the salt of the earth but um, when you start to build something with this person when you're involved into a job together, when you try to build, a, I don't know, a cabin, a boat, a book, um, then you realize that if you if you don't hammer the finger at the other, uh, your <laughs> friendship increases mm-hmm. a lot <laughs> well, and re- gets and right. gets always deeper and deeper. And we 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 really became brother with DJ in a way that. Uh, I mean, I'm very grateful to myself <laughs> for having the idea in '98 to propose him to get closer to each other, because uh, I didn't know he had a, so he would have such a short life. So it was right in time. It was it was even too late. It was even late, but not too late. And uh, so we had the opportunity to discuss a lot about everything in life but of course especially about our two passions which are photographs for him and storytelling and drawing for me and uh, I'm I'm going to publish in November in France a book of conversations between the the two of us because uh, after his death uh, took me a short while before having the strength to re-listen to the tape that we had recorded together but uh, after a few weeks I I dared to do so and I was right because after two minutes I was laughing <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we while I was re-listening to all of that I realized that there were a, a lot of things that weren't in the books we had done because they weren't supposed to be uh, there were ideas and uh, about the the ethic of his job, the technique of his job, about the genealogy of his job, etc. And all of this was really interesting. I was wondering whether I could knit uh, these digressions together 
to make a book out of them out of them and so i've done this job a few months ago and i like the results i mean i really think we met the man by well at least we have an idea of who he was by reading this book so it's going to be published in november i hope i hope it will be translated someday uh if the photographer touched certain persons here in english so you'll be able to read it i hope so to see to see uh other photographs because now he's quite famous about what he has done in afghanistan but of course as a professional reporter he's been in all sort of places in the world when you mentioned ethic that was something that really struck me about the book was that he was involved in all these situations but he was so respectful and didn't involve himself in a way too like he would be there documenting all these incredible things happening but it wasn't about him it was about the what he was seeing and making sure that his subject matter was respected which i found really great that was him that uh, was really a uh, an aspect very strong of his personality he was um he was a photographer because he was interested in life and interested in the others and um as a man interested in the others he he was he was respectful and uh, naturally and um the, the the doctors of the missions with whom i spoke a lot when i and they became very close friends uh when i prepared the the, the second part of the photographer they told me one good thing about didier is that we didn't know he was there <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he was I mean he he was fooling playing his part when we had fun together or where we need when we needed help or etc but while we were practicing our our job surgery etc we we never saw him and he was there he was bending over us and we were bending over the our patients but uh he never bothered us he wasn't the kind of uh, photographer who asks you whether you can uh, uh, start once again the surgery from the beginning because he, <laughs> has, <laughs> he had forgotten to put the film in the camera or things like that because that <laughs> happens. But um, he, this discretion was... Uh, th- there's another anecdote about him which is, which is nice. It's uh, Florence Aubenas, who who's a journalist in France, and she, <coughs> she's been famous because she's been hostage in Baghdad uh, a few years ago during months and uh, Didier was very worried about her at the time of course and when he died she she wrote an article in the press in France and she said um, I was with him uh, in uh, in uh, Zaire near uh, Rwanda during the Rwanda uh, wars and uh, uh, slaughterings etc and uh, we were uh asking some questions to a woman who was a refugee from Rwanda in Zaire and uh she Didier was by my side and he was listening to the testimony of this woman and didn't take any picture and um after a while the woman asked me so she asked Florence of Nas who is this man by your side and she said he's my photographer <laughs> and this woman said oh it's funny he looks more like a man he looks like a man <laughs> <laughs> not not a photographer <laughs> just a man and that that's a good definition of the he was a man first yeah. a very nice human being 
and he never forgot he was a human being to take a good picture. Uh, and that made him uh, the, the, the most valuable person to, to be friend with because um, first the, the first person you meet when you had him him in front of you was the was the human being with this really his head on his shoulders and uh, always thinking always full of doubts as intelligent persons are <laughs> and uh, but also with always the strength to act and to do things and to leave time after time to for the, the, the places where you used to go uh, and which weren't the, the places of holidays most of the time <laughs> yeah. and uh, so that that's what made him very very special there's oh, sorry go ahead uh, I was just thinking like uh, the the book is so important because it humanizes uh, the situation a lot more like in the western world it seems we uh, a lot of us rely on cliches and so on of, uh, of Afghanistan and uh, paint the country with a broad brush, but it really brings into focus all the different kinds of people that live there, the good ones, the bad ones, and uh, and I just, uh, I thought that that's really important for people in our country, in all our countries, especially like in with U.S. doubling down in Afghanistan and Canada there, to, to understand uh, their culture, which we don't get... Uh, a lot of access to it's a it's a great inside look into into how it is we should have as a contractual obligation to have at least a friend in each country in the world <laughs> 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 because that would change everything i mean when you know someone uh, in a foreign place uh, the country becomes this person and uh, I don't know if you have any Mexican friends, for instance, but uh, with what happens today, if you have some, you think about them, mm -hmm. and suddenly everything is much closer to you. And the good thing about books is that, uh, for instance, if you read uh, Marjan Satrapi's uh, Persepolis, uh, you have an Iranian friend, and suddenly it's different. It's, uh, it's not like not having one. Yeah, and um, so um, giving the names, for instance, of the persons who are cured in the book, try in the end to rec recapitulate, uh, as long as we know what has become of them, etc. Uh, I've I felt it was something to be done, um, especially because. Uh, one thing I was uh, trying to obtain with this book is the sensation really of time passing and um, and I wanted us to take our time and I wanted the reader to take one's time to really be involved into the situation the one of the great problems in the media <coughs> is that uh, except for us today who have the royal amount of 90 minutes to talk together. <laughs> yeah, generally, uh, we have no time to tell the stories. We have only the time to evoke them. Mm -hmm. But when we only evoke the stories, they have the terrible tendency to look like each other very much. Uh, there's nothing which looks more 
uh, as a war than another war. So all these wars passing years after years uh, become some sort of merry-go-round, an endless merry-go-round. And yesterday I was on the panel here at the Pen World Voices Festival, and um, we were free. There was uh, a Catalan, a Spanish uh, philosopher, and there was uh, an Iraqi um, contemporary artist who lives in New York. His name is Wafa Bilal, and uh, he has done very some, something very impressive. Wafa has lost recently his father and his bro- and one of his brothers in the war in Iraq. And uh, f- a few time ago, he saw program on TV, which was an interview of a woman here in America, I don't know where, in Colorado, I think. And she was explaining that uh, her job consisted in uh, preparing the, I didn't really understand how it works, but preparing the bombings that would take place in Iraq. So this distance between the person who shoots and the person who receives uh, is such that uh, can be such that uh, it turns even more war into such a into a very virtual thing and um, Wafa uh, he had an idea he decided he would remain one month one whole month and closed in a gallery I think it was in Chicago and uh, with a a very like a, a little jail cell and he was enclosed with a paintball gun and people were invited to shoot at him and it lasted a whole month Um, and it's been of course a very exhausting experience (laughs) for him but uh, he it was also very interesting because uh, you could for instance to shoot at him you could uh, orientate the gun uh, with your computer and after a short while he realized that uh, there were some people relaying day and night to orientate the gun in a certain way that he wouldn't be hit so they called themselves the virtual human shield (laughs) (laughs) and they were spending their day and night clicking uh, on the keyboard to protect Wafa so um, all of this to say that um, we have to we have to get out of uh, our houses and to see what happens, like Didier did. And uh, some some men dedicate their lives in doing so. I mean, they just they they go to the places, they take the time to discuss with the persons, and uh, Didier always. Uh, Didier always sat and discussed first and then took pictures. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was the one uh, who could uh, come back year after year in the same place just to see how things evolved. He did that, for instance, in Kosovo. Uh, a few years before his death, he used to come back every year in a little village in the Albanese part of, uh, of Kosovo. And uh, he was there first at the time of the the slaughterings, and then he came back to see how people lived in after war. 
and uh, very often medias are not interested in after wars, but we are. Mm -hmm. We want to know how a person who has been through such a uh, uh, tragical episode uh, can rebuild oneself, can uh, maybe start to live again and have children and etc. in a place where uh, parents have been killed. And uh, so he he was this kind of, of photographer, and I that's that's one of the reasons why, and maybe the most important why I admired him so much. He was someone who would uh, get out of his house, take a plane, and go to very difficult places to know what was happening there for the human beings. And um, when I knew that this man almost didn't work in France because uh, every time he would come back from uh, a mission they would say in the magazines that uh, this week uh, uh, President Chirac has lost a hair or, uh, <laughs> or the Queen of England has uh, blah blah I don't know so it's impossible to or Sarkovsky has a young wife <laughs> <laughs> for instance um, it's uh, it's there's something that uh, that drives you crazy. So you want to you want to build a place where uh, these things are sheltered in a way. And when you realize afterwards that you you, you sell two hundred and seventy thousand copies of your book, that's what happened <laughs> to us in France. You 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 sell more than the newspapers now. <laughs> so that's a sign that times have changed. Well, I think people are really interested in, in contemporary world mm -hmm. and what happens around us. But uh, but we have to find the form, and that's an interesting challenge. I mean, uh, thousands of people do do this successfully every day by making movies and. Uh, books, etc. But uh, that's an interesting thing to do. Such a form to make, to make the information circulate. Well, it seems like um, what really is grabbing people, it's a new story they don't already know. I mean, one of the problems with the newspapers, I mean, there's one part that's the internet, the other part is that what's new? And it's mm. the same regurgitated publicity, I guess. Like you're saying, the one hair is astray. Well, like you said earlier, when uh, when you take out uh, and just go to the details, uh, then it, when you skip the details and just do the overview, it all starts to sound the same. Bye. 
Now, one thing about the photographer that really struck me in comparisons with Alan War, Alan's War, um, is that Alan's War. It's a longer story that kind of captures the essence of a man's life. The photographer, it feels almost like a, in itself is a photograph because you're taking one part and focusing on that. Like there's very little preamble. There's a little at the end of follow-up of some of the characters involved in the story. But to me, it it is a photograph in itself. Does that make sense? Yes. Alan is about memory. So it's a story in the past tense. Uh, my aim is to have you seated in front of Alan, like I was, in the little cabin that I have drawn in the very last pages of the book, and you listen to him. And um, Didi, on the contrary, is in the present tense. It's a diary. So it's not about memory. It's about uh, look. So you're right. These are really two different projects. And I guess I wouldn't have done a project with another one than Alan, who would have looked like, more or less, like what Alan told me. I needed something really different. Mm -hmm. These are two... I, I'm not finished with Alan. Um, I'm starting to work about his childhood now. And uh, I thought I was finished with Didier in, in this sort of uh, uh, comics form because uh, we said together uh, we won't do the photographer again uh, we won't do like uh, Didier on the moon uh, Didier in the Congo uh, Didier, uh, <laughs> Didier in America etc uh, we'll stop now and we'll try to figure out if we can do something different as a matter of fact <coughs> when he died it was three months before uh, travel I've done to Japan and he he was about to join me there and we would have made some sort of travel together in which each of us would have worked with his own tools and um, and then in the end we would have uh, like shared our impressions and compared the results of our two works and tried to make a book out of it like a Calmet kind of thing? I don't know what the, the form would have been in the end but um, I've I, I like the idea of traveling with him and I guess we would have done that in these years but um, now that he's not here anymore I feel as I told you that there are some reportings that need to be saved I cannot make the photographer again I mean the same kind of story without him because mm -hmm. uh, he's not there anymore to provide me with all the details but um Fortunately, he was someone who wrote a lot, and I have his notebooks. So knitting his notebooks with the the contact sheet that he left may enable me to to to, to try to do something about these reportings. So I'll keep on working with Alan. I'll keep on working with Didier. Alan has, has always showed me the way for Didier. For instance, I realized that keeping on working with Alan after his death was something that did me good. And uh, I know it's going to be the same with Didier. So I'll, uh, 
I'm, so I'll do it. And plus, there's one thing which is very interesting with these kind of stories is that when they interest people as they do, uh, they provide you with other stories and other meetings. And y I've, it's not here the, the place to tell you all the anecdotes about what happened <laughs> to me thanks to these books. <laughs> but it's incredible. I mean, these books are writing my life. And... Uh, and shaping your own story. It is. It's in such uh, in such an interesting way. For instance, uh, two weeks ago I was uh, in Ohio with a woman called Clementine. And this Clementine was uh, the person that one of the persons that you meet in Alan's War in the in the first chap in the third chapter. And uh, she was a young German girl. Who was playing accordion at the, the, the soldiers, the, the soldiers' mess in uh, Regensburg in Bavaria when Alan was there, and they made friends, they got to know each other, and uh, and then they split during uh, the, the larger part of their lives, but reconnected in the, in the very end, exchanged a, full, a few letters, and um, I met this family, and I got to know Clementine, and uh, we spent four days together. And, uh, few days ago and uh, she told me a lot of things about Alan and it's been uh, a very touching and important moment for me so that's the kind of emotion that you can have if you just keep on following the the, the feature uh, the line and I I do the same with Didier I follow the line I they, they keep on showing me uh, the way that's that's how it happened with Alan. I mean, I asked him my way when I when I met him the first time. Please, the Place de la République, s'il vous plaît. <laughs> and uh, and uh, almost twenty years after, I'm still on this path. It's. It, I read about how for Alan's war, you did a lot of traveling of where he had lived, and it reminds me of I know that um, Hugo Pratt really pushed um, to really live what you you're doing. Um, especially like telling Monera to go and you know travel and then do these comics based on where you go. Is that kind of in tune in what drove you to understand who he was? Mm, when he just before dying, Alan told me you're going to go to America at the age of forty. He he liked to prophesize a little bit <laughs> <laughs> and. Um, and there you'll do a certain amount of things for me. For instance, you go and say hello, and that's very important, I want you to do that, to uh, the General Sherman. The General Sherman? Yes. <laughs> he's, uh, he's the biggest sequoia on Earth, and uh, so the biggest living human being, the most massive. <laughs> and I, I want you to see this being, and I want you to say hello for me and you also go to Big Sur and see uh, if you have any chance the, the house where Henry Miller used to live and etc so he made me a program and uh, I couldn't do anything else than go <laughs> <laughs> at the precise time he had indicated me so that's what I've done I, I, at the age of 40 I, w I went there with my wife and daughter and we, s we spent the most delicious time in California 
making uh, a trip in a rented car. And um, I, w I went also to Germany. I was not a, a Germanist. I mean, I, I've learned Spanish at school, and now I speak Italian, etc. So I'm not, I wasn't in this sphere. And uh, I always felt it would be very interesting to... Uh, as a matter of fact, I had traveled to Germany before, and I had tried to learn a bit of the language. But um, in this occasion, to be received by the family who opened uh, the door to Ellen 60 years before was, of course, something very interesting. I mean, I'm, uh, I'm not very good as a tourist, but I like to visit uh, places where a story is waiting for me. And um, so that's the reason why I traveled. And um, also because uh, I felt I needed to have this appointment with him. Uh, when you arrive to Pasadena, for instance, where he was raised up, and you have some photo album under your arm, and you flip through them and you're searching for a house, for instance, you have the name of the street, but the problem of the streets of Pasadena, like most of the streets in California, is they are endless. <laughs> <laughs> so it takes you a day to go from the top to the bottom. And uh, you have a little picture that has been taken 70 years ago, and you have to find a house. <laughs> but when you do, when you find the house, of course the trees have grown a, a great deal around, and some things have been added on the facade, and etc. But it's that's the house undoubtedly uh, it's impossible to explain it's just something that takes place in your heart but uh, uh, you, you suddenly you see the door open and you, and you see the young boy coming at you and he, that's Alan but he's five years old and uh, that's very touching and that gives that's the sort of things that makes you come back to Paris and sit at your drawing table and start again we need that. It's like refueling. Uh, I need these stories to f to to feed me and to allow me to come back to. It gives you. It provides energy. I mean, it's, it's vitamins. Mm -hmm. Comic book vitamins. <laughs> <laughs> this December you had, or last December, I should say, you had uh, Japonais released in France yeah. from Futuropolis. Is there any plans to to translate that or like La Campagne à la Mer anytime soon or? Oh, that would be great. But they are they are not comics at all. They are uh, books of uh, sketches mm -hmm. and uh, and short stories. So um, there are three of them. One is about La Campagne à la Mer, which means uh, campaign by the seaside, is a book about Normandy. Uh, there's a book about Paris called Le Pavé de Paris, which means the, the, the Parisian cobblestone. And there's this book called Japanese, Japonais, um, which is the, the fruit of the stay I have made two years ago where Didier should have joined me and uh, Didier had never been to Japan and like all the reporters he had uh, he had like a file uh, on one of his shelves and in, in this file he would from time to time put uh, a press article uh, that he would cut with scissors uh, and 
for it's like we say in France, it's it's a pair for the first. <laughs> it's something that you save for the future, and it was subject of future uh, reportings for him. And the file about Japan was very funny. He he told me, I want to I want to see Japan because I want to see the tomb of the Christ. And uh, he showed me the the article on which this was explained and I saw that there was the tomb of the Christ in Japan <laughs> <laughs> in the north and uh, that there's that once a year there was like a, a Christ festival which was something obviously very quaint very picturesque and very funny and uh, he wanted to see that so first thing I did when I arrived in Japan of course was to ask my Japanese friends whether this tomb existed and where, where, how I could get to to this place, and uh, they had never heard of that, obviously, and but they tried on the internet and saw that there was this tomb of the Christ in a little village called Shingo, in the Aomori Prefecture, in the north of the Honshu Island, the main island in, of the archipel, and that the Christo Matsuri Festival of the Christ took place every year in the first weekend of June that was exactly at the chronological middle of my stay <laughs> so that was like perfect, I, c I could go there so I took two Shinkansen, two high speed train uh, two buses and one cab to get to this place in the middle of nowhere uh, it's all rice fields around and valleys and it's a little village there's no hotel, there's just a, an onsen with uh, hot springs. And um, I, I stayed there during two or three days, and I had the opportunity to, to attend the, the Cristo Matsuri. And it's a 100% Shinto ceremony with a guji, a Shinto priest, who arrives with uh, zucchinis, bananas, and etc. to make some uh, worshipping and offerings. And uh, there's the mayor of the, the little town who comes and gives certificates uh, to the good citizens of the year. And, uh, and there are dances around the, the tomb Christ, and the, the, the tomb of the Christ. And the, the funny story about the tomb of the Christ is that um, in 30, 1936, an archaeologist dug in this place and found the testament of the Christ written in ancient Japanese, saying that, uh, well, it's, it's, it's quite known that between the age of 20 and between the age of 30, what Christ has done is not very well documented in the Bible. And uh, so the whole world claims that the Christ was here or there during this period. <laughs> but the truth is that the Christ, the Christ was in Japan. <laughs> and um, and he, he learned there with some very wise persons not only the Japanese language, but also the Japanese spirituality. And the good news, he came back to announce to his fellows in Palestine, was uh, the news of the Japanese spirituality. He's been welcomed, as we know, but uh, what we don't know is that he was from uh, a big family, and he had a younger brother called Izukiri, who died on the cross at his place. And uh, after the death of, the, of Izukiri, 
Jesus, who knew he was uh, not really welcome uh, in Palestine anymore, <laughs> cut the ears of his brother, cut some hair of uh, Virgin Mary that he wouldn't see anymore, and he left uh, definitely Palestine to get back to Japan. And um, it's been a terrible story. He had to pass by uh, Siberia with a few disciples. They all more or less died of, uh, of cold, obviously. And finally succeeded in getting to a boat and to reach Hachinohe in the, in the um, Aomori uh, prefecture. And there he settled down in Shingo, got married, uh, had three, I don't remember, three daughters. Uh, that's the reason why today all the inhabitants of Shingo are more or less uh, grand-grandchildren from Jesus, and they, they claim they are. And uh, he died at the age of a respectable age of uh, 106, and he's buried there. <laughs> it's there very biblical age. <laughs> <laughs> there are two tumulus side by side, one with the Christ, and another one with the, the ears of Izukiri and the hair of the Virgin Mary. So that's the story. I've been there. And uh, on my way back, uh, I've told all of this in this book called uh, Japonais, turning it into, into a, uh, a fiction. Well, I'm not mentioning what I've just told you, which is obviously a fiction, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but, <What>? uh, <laughs> but I, I added some pepper and salt of my own. <laughs> so that, that's what I like to do. I'm, I'm a comics author, and I will remain a comics author, but sometimes I like to draw more than comics allow me to, and I like to write more than comics allow me to. That's the reason why I also write novels, short stories, and things like that. Well, it's it's interesting because, I mean, you, you have two different worlds to your comic work. You have this very humanist stuff like Alan's War and The Photographer, and then you have this... I'm trying to think of the right term. It's slightly comic. There's like sardine and uh, the professor's daughter, and uh, and it's all very much more uh, unreal. Yeah. Yeah. It's a nice balance. <laughs> well, I think we are. Um, we 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 always have a we we always are a hundred persons in one, and that's part of our certain difficulties we have in life. But um, to to be someone who publishes books and uh, is uh, is the opportunity for uh, for me to uh, to try to explore all these persons I know I am since I'm a young boy and um, when I like things I want to reproduce them I want to search in this direction. So I'm a 45 years old man who who likes to deal with uh, problems that uh, or questions or uh, uh, issues that are that have the reputation to be issues of my age. But um, I'm also still a nine or seven years old kid who wants to entertain himself by telling silly stories. Um, and um, and it's not that a part of my work is, in my opinion, more important than the other. I mean, I, I really need both. And uh, when I work for the children, for instance, 
it's not that I turn into the the, the, the child I'll still I still am. I mean, I'm still 45 and I still want to deal with important issues, but for kids. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so it's um, so it means uh, to to take a different kind of uh, point of view. And uh, one of the duties I have when I turn towards kids is to make them laugh. And uh, this I like very much because um, on the first part it consists in making myself laugh first. And uh, so. I mean, I, I don't refuse myself anything. I, uh, I could do much more if I wasn't such a slow person. But uh, I, I try really to explore several directions. Oh, I, I, I think you uh, have a pretty good uh, productive output. I would not definitely not say slow. <laughs> Maybe around some of your contemporaries. Uh, that that must push you creatively, having friends that are all very creative and. Pushing is different, you know, with with Didier, with his photography, but also you worked very closely with uh, with Jean Safar, yeah. And so that like, it, does it push you? These friends you're mentioning, whose name are uh, Louis Trondheim, uh, Jean Safar, Christophe Blain, David B. You may pronounce David B. here, <laughs> <laughs> and. Um, and Marjan and uh, a lot of others. Uh, I've been lucky enough to meet to meet them all at the same period of my life. As a matter of fact, it was the year, the blessed year, where I met Alan. So all this bunch of friends they appeared at the same time. And it's it's often like that in life. You 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 cross first a quite desertic period, and where you have the feeling that you really a dried fruit, and that nothing will ever happen to you again and etc and then suddenly uh, one uh, one certain morning you you push a door and behind this door there are all these persons waiting for you and you become naturally friends with them and uh, it turns out to be one of the best periods of your life and you and you become much more productive and and you learn a lot by the examples of the others and uh, what Joanne, Christophe, uh, Emile, uh, uh, Frédéric Boilet, etc., have told me is, uh, I mean, I, I, I can't count it. It's, uh, it's huge. They really have made me blossom in my work, and uh, that's, that's more or less, even though I had worked 10 years before I met them, it's really there that everything started. And um, so that's very, very important. And you, we have to be ready for friendship anytime. Mm-hmm. And uh, that means not to protect oneself too much. Uh, be and, open. Uh, yeah, be be ready. Be be in search. Be and have always room uh, within you to to welcome someone new. I think we, that's the perfect note to end on. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. It's uh, yeah, we're we're. I I feel like that's kind of perfect. Yeah, that's great. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you and listening to your stories. Uh, I get an impression that it must be l- something like uh, listening to you is what you kind of got 
from listening to Alan and to Didier. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Thank you very much for calling. Thank you so much. And so, yeah. Meet you in Toronto. I'll see you in Toronto. And no one likes us. I don't know why. We may not be perfect, but heaven knows we try. But all around, even our old friends put us down. Let's drop the big one and see what happens. We give them money. Are they grateful? No, they're spiteful and they're hateful. They don't respect us, so let's surprise them. We'll drop the big one and pulverize them. The Asia's crowded, Europe's too old, Africa's far too hot, and Canada's too cold. And South America stole our name. Let's drop the big one, there'll be no one left to blame us We'll save Australia Don't wanna hurt no kangaroo We'll build an all-American amusement park there They got surfing too Everybody free. You wear a Japanese kimono, baby. Be Italian shoes for me. They all hate us anyhow. So let's drop the big one now. Let's drop the big one now.